when I was just going over the edge and then the heat was almost hitting my face it was so hot I had to cover my face with my hands and then I could just hear this lava lake it's just like 100 times louder than boiling water and the whole time you have to imagine that the earth is trembling because there are like volcanic quakes I had to wear gas mask and also close to the edge you have to wear a heat suit you know for some people they would say wow this is like hell to me it's like heaven that was this week's guest, Ulla Lohmann, describing what it's like to stand on the edge of a lava lake inside an active volcano. Ulla is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met, and her story is just incredible. So please stay tuned. Well, hi, Graham Dargy here. I'm a professional photographer from Aberdeen, Scotland, and this is the Viewfinders Photography Podcast, where I meet some of the best photographers from around the world with the aim of inspiring you on your photography journey. Well, how's things? Last episode, I mentioned I was going on holiday, so me and my wife and our daughter went to London for a few days. Uh, We've been to London many times, but it was the first time for our daughter, who's six, and uh, she was so excited and just in awe of the whole experience. Uh, We did loads of stuff, but really the best bit was seeing our daughter experience it all for the first time and watching her have so many new and amazing experiences. I was so super grateful, but just exhausted. Keeping pace with an excited six-year-old when you're heading to your mid-40s is tough. (laughs) Photography-wise, I've been busy. I did a really cool job for an accountancy firm just the day before we went away. Uh, They wanted headshots, but also a little bit of video, so that was a good little job. And as soon as we got back, I'm right back into it with some headshots and marketing photos for an offshore drilling consultancy which is a great little job everything here in aberdeen is related to the energy industry so every business is offshore or subsea or renewables uh, and it's just really interesting going into these offices as an outsider to the industry meeting some of the amazing experts that we have here and seeing what they get up to it's really an amazing industry apart from photography work still working on my next viewfinders live events and I'll be using the ad slots to tell you the latest information on those. But I can announce right here and now that my guests for autumn 2022 will be 50-time National Geographic photographer Jim Richardson, mindful photography pioneer Paul Sanders, and award-winning landscape photographer Kai Hornung. So excited about these events. As I said, the info will be in the ad slots. Uh, and you can find full details at viewfinderslive.com. But don't forget to use the code VF10, capital V, capital F, one zero, to save 10% on your tickets. That's just for Viewfinders listeners. Okay, before we get started, the usual invitation to subscribe or follow Viewfinders on your favorite platform and to connect with me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast. In the last couple of weeks, I've heard from listeners Alan Howe, Ian Hull, Joe Andrews, and Sarah. So, Grab your phone, get on the Instagrams and drop me a message and I'll give you a mention on the show. Okay, time to introduce this week's amazing guest, Ulla Lohman. Ulla is a documentary photographer and filmmaker from Lake Starnberg, Germany, who regularly works for magazines and broadcasters, including National Geographic, Geo, BBC, Red Bull Media House and Sternview. She's an ambassador for Canon, Eidsoe, Manfrotto and F-Stop. She's an elected member of the German Photographic Society and she's been appointed as a fellow of the Explorers Club in New York. 
Ula also conducts workshops and photography expeditions to active volcano sites around the world. As a child of two teachers, her imagination and curiosity were always encouraged, and when she won a national science competition as a teenager, she used the winnings to fund her first trip around the world, and she's never looked back. Her dream to descend into the heart of an active volcano was inspired by reading Jules Verne as a child, and her film Spitting Distance, which follows the fulfillment of this dream, is one of the most gripping things I've ever seen. As intense as that is, as our conversation continues, you'll see that there are other parts of Ula's journey which are even more emotional. If you're a regular listener, you can probably tell I was a little nervous on this one. Uh, I was really excited to be talking with Ula, but also a little on edge because I knew I'd be asking some very personal questions, so bear with me for that. This is a fascinating conversation covering curiosity, loss, family, forgiveness, healing, and even a little bit about photography. Before we dive in, a trigger warning, the theme of suicide comes up in this episode. Here's my conversation with the remarkable Ula Lohman. Ula Lohman, welcome to Viewfinders Podcast. How are you? Really well, thanks for having me here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so, so excited. It's so interesting what you do, your journey, Sounds really interesting, and um, I have a lot of questions. So let's let's dive in. You're from Germany, right? Are you in Germany now? I am actually in Germany since October. It's day number seven that I'm in Germany. So I'm usually traveling. I'm on the road. I'm born in Germany, but that's the place I'm. I find myself the least. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so where were you? Which part of Germany did you grow up in? I grew up near the French border. That's why I'm bilingual. I speak French and German. And I'm now living or I'm having my base camp uh, in Bavaria near between Munich and the mountains on the shores of a lake and between lake and river. <laughs> okay. What, what lake is it? It's Lake Starnberg. So we are between the Isar River and Lake Starnberg in a very natural habitat. I live close to the forest and um, to, view the, to see the mountains, I just have to walk a couple hundred meters and then I see the mountains. So, yeah, I was reading on your website that um, when you grew up, you dreamed of faraway places. Where did those dreams come from, do you think? They came from reading books. I was reading a lot and I had a very vivid mind. So I always wondered and I imagined the people from my book. I was really living with them and I was reading Chilvan, Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I was imagining how it would be to go inside a volcano. I was uh, dreaming together with um, avid folks like the polar explorers. I was dreaming to go to the poles and I was always very vicious with my dreams. And my parents were both teachers, so they encouraged me to um, always be curious and ask more. So whenever I read something, I had questions. They tried to help me to find the answers to the questions. So I was always intrigued by science and by travel. You sound like my daughter. She has a lot of questions. My, my girl is six and um, the questions are endless. And you want to encourage that, don't you, as a parent? Um, do you think that curiosity is really what has driven you uh, in your in your photography journey? What still drives me today? Because the moment I stop being curious, I think that will be the moment I put the camera down. The photography work and filmmaking let me go to the 
further with the questions because I can dive into a story. I can talk to scientists. I can follow scientists. I'm a scientist myself, so I'm always interested in science stories. And I can meet people because to me, people, they always have so many answers to things. Everybody has their different answer, has their different reality. And to me, that's very, very intriguing. And yes, it did lead me in my photography journey and it still leads me today. Mm -hmm. So I read on your website as well, when you were 18, you won a science competition and that uh, you, you, that's how you funded your first trip around the world. Did that involve documenting your journey with photography? Is that how you got into photography? When I was 15, I discovered a never found fossil amphibian, almost 300 million years old. So I was working three years on it to reconstruct this life of the past, of this past animal. And with this very important work still today for scientists, I won the biggest national science competition and a lot of money. So with this money, I bought myself a ticket around the world and I started traveling. I did realize that I, well, money is endless. Uh, it's not endless. Um, <laughs> I have to work, but I can, if I want to learn something, I can learn anything. So no matter if it was like, becoming a dive instructor to make money like this, cleaning boats under the water, um, like welding underwater, or even like building stages for concerts or cooking. I could learn everything and anything at all times to make money. So I got really confident that I will get around and along no matter where. And this journey I documented for my regional community because in our village we had like, a, or in the region, we had like a magazine and every month I published articles. First I started off by writing and then I realized it's pretty boring just writing. So I published pictures and that's how I got into photography by wanting to sh share my journey also to encourage others that they can do everything what they want and also to share my experiences with the people back home. And I started to become a journalist without even knowing it. So I documented my past, my journey, my way, and uh, first through writing with really bad photographs. And then I put more and more emphasis on photography because I said I can learn everything, also photography. And I did learn by just moving along the way. Okay. As a photographer, you just came into being a documentary photographer or a photojournalist. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then later, did you, you go on another trip later? I read that you, you bumped into a team from National Geographic. Maybe that was a, a turning point in your life as well. Um, what happened there? I was on my way to search for an active volcano. Ever since I read to then as a child, I wanted to see an active volcano. So I left a ship. I was living and cooking on a ship. I left the ship and I started to search for a volcano, which I found in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Okay. But I was not alone on this volcano. There was a team from National Geographic there who were doing a film. And I actually told them that I can cook. So I hired, um, I was hired luckily as a cook for my first National Geographic job. I started okay. as a cook. <laughs> okay. That must have been a great experience then. Did you learn a lot being around those guys? Yes. Um, I was, they did never really 
teach me photography. So mm -hmm. I was just learning by looking, mm -hmm. but I learned a lot because I'm a very good observer. So um, still today, I like to talk, but I also like to observe and to listen to what people don't say, what they just say in their body language. And so were you at Vanuatu to, to, to look for the volcano? Is, is that why you were there anyway? Yes. Okay, let me segue into the first part of your work that I wanted to talk about then, because the thing that caught my attention about you, and probably I'm sure the thing that you're most known for, is going inside an active volcano. And um, I saw the film that was on the Red Bull website with you and your team going into the, is it the Benbo volcano? Is that how you say it? Benbo volcano, yes, correct. Extraordinary. Incredibly intense to watch. I watched it again this morning to prepare for this. And just to hear you and the, the team talking about your motivations and your experiences and to witness what you must have went through there. So you said that you'd always wanted to descend into a volcano from being a child. Kind of a childlike or innocent kind of dream or ambition to have. Um, what was it, do you think, that really caught your imagination about volcanoes and going into volcanoes? It's that borderline between life destruction and life creation, which I really love. Volcanoes are the creation of the earth, but they can destroy everything and anything in a second. Mm -hmm. So to me, being like this curious child with a vivid imagination, volcanoes were always the heart of the earth, the heart, the origins of everything. So that's why I wanted to see an active volcano. Mm -hmm. And I did not let the stream go for a very, very, very long time. And I made everything so I could actually go and see an active volcano. So when I was 19, that's when I was helping the National Geographic team on top of the volcano. Mm -hmm. I just was by myself searching for the volcano and I was meeting the team and I was standing at the border of the volcano, looking down into the crater. I still remember this moment that I was like, wow, that's it. That's the fulfillment of my dream. And I mm -hmm. looked into the volcano, but then the lava lake was so far down and I could just see a little bit of red glow and, you know, the sensation to step on the edge, to feel the heat from the volcano was great. But at the same time, it was a bit disappointing because the lava was still so far down. So I said, okay, one day I want to go down to the lava lake. I want to experience with my full body. I want to kind of stand there where nobody else has been before. And that's mm -hmm. how from this childhood dream, something much, much, much bigger came out of it. And so the expedition that's in the film that I mentioned, was the purpose of that scientific or was it just an, an, an experience, an adventure for you to go on? Basically, many, many, many years later, this dream became reality because back then when I was 19, I could only dream. I could not climb in and out of the volcano. I did not know anything, anything about volcanoes. I also did not know the local language and um, I had no idea. So and also I did not film and photograph well enough. So then I, um, I acquired all these skills throughout the years. I made many successful, uh, su not successful attempts to go into the volcano. And then finally, I financed an expedition myself. So mm -hmm. I said, okay, nobody wants to pay me to go down into the volcano because of course everybody was scared. So me and my partner, Basti, we financed an expedition. 
we had to abandon halfway. So we were caught by rain. And when the rain falls through acid gases, it becomes acid rain. And we had to upsize 600 meters inside the volcano. And we were not sure if the ropes would hold. So we had to abandon. So mm -hmm. then one year later, we finally convinced people that we can make it safe to go down there and that it's also important for, for science to go. So we had a research grant and a film team to make a film about the expedition. So basically the interest was exploration and science. Okay. There's a moment where, you, where you're descending into the volcano on a rope. And I was when I was watching that, you could tell it was obviously it's a big moment for you that you've dreamed about that. And I know for me, if I'm going to do a photo shoot of something that, or a location that I'm really interested in, I get obsessed about it and I can dream, literally will dream about it. So I, I was imagining that you must have gone through that kind of excitement and, and anticipation for it. But the moment of descending in, can you think back to that and what you were feeling emotionally and, and with your other senses? Because one thing that we can't interpret through the photography necessarily or the heats and the sounds and the smells. If you go back to that moment, what was that feeling really like when you went down on that rope? I was very concentrated in a moment like this, where your life hangs on a small rope like this, you have to concentrate a lot on the action itself. Mm -hmm. So there's no room for, um, you know, there's no room for error. So basically in moments like this, I was very concentrated. When I came off the rope after upsetting 600 meters, it takes like, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours it took us to go down because you have to establish the ropes and you have to like drill holes and you have to reflect because there was also one really dangerous moment where we almost had to turn around when a big gas storm came. Mm -hmm. So all this time you're very concentrated. And then we arrived at the bottom where nobody else has been before. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, it was still not a moment where I realized what I was doing. I um, stepped to the lava lake and this moment when I just arrived at the lake, because when you arrive at the platform, when you upsell, you cannot see the lake. It's mm -hmm. just this moment when you upsell and you touch the ground and then you have to walk to go to the rim. Mm -hmm. And this is when I was just going over the edge and then the heat was almost hitting my face it was so hot. I had to cover my face with my hands and then I could just hear this lava lake. It's just like hundred times louder than boiling water, but it makes like a little bit of a sound like boiling water. Mm -hmm. And the whole time you have to imagine that the earth is trembling because there are like um, volcanic quakes and you're inside this um, funnel. I mean, the sky is just a little... Um, light like you know you're like in a big um hole in the ground the sky mm -hmm. is 600 meters above you and i just remember the smells as well because they sting in your nose and i had to wear gas mask because uh well they're not really poisonous gases down there and also the gas mask does not help against the poisonous gases mm -hmm. but the gases are really dense and it's very hard to breathe when you're like in this harsh environment it's really hot you have to wear the gas mask and also close to the edge, you have to wear a heat suit. So it's like really awkward with all the equipment. But, you know, for some people, it, or for most people, they would say, wow, this is like hell. To me, it's like heaven. Mm -hmm. It was so cool. You step up to the rim there. 
going back to your childhood, do you connect back to that moment of reading, you know, Journey to the Center of the Earth? I mean, are, are you, is it must be like a whole, your world of emotions just coming together in that one moment. Yes, I know. Not at the beginning when I first looked into the lava lake, because you cannot have emotions in moments like this. You have to be very clear and analytic mm -hmm. and rational. So um, we had work to do. We had to film. We had to photograph. I mean, of course, it was an emotional moment, but not that I could just sit there and dream. It was okay. only after probably we worked there for eight or nine hours again inside the volcano. And then afterwards, when we finished all the measuring, all the videography, all the photography, 360-degree footage, and we did take samples afterwards, then I took 10 minutes to myself. I said, okay. I just want to sit and stare in that lake. And this was the moment where everything connected. So I was like thinking back about my childhood, about the childhood dream. I'm like, wow, this is even better than I ever dreamt of. And I had uh, many thoughts about the origin of life because you feel so small when you're sitting next to this big boiling lava lake. I mean, we were still 50 meters above the lava lake, but then there were the fountains being like 70 meters, so like 20 meters above our heads. Okay. There were these fountains of lava. They were like coming up and always falling down in the lake. So it was not really dangerous, but very impressive. Mm. So this I could never have dreamt of as a child that it would be so big and so beautiful but also that I would feel so small as a human against this big power of nature. So mm -hmm. I wrote in my journal that I found the answers to all human questions mm -hmm. because they don't matter. They are, the answers, the questions, nothing matters because we're way too small for our big questions. We're just some tiny specks in the universe, but yet I'm allowed to be alive. I'm allowed to be there. So I found life is a very big present and I felt that it's so much worth living. And I realized that what I really want to do is encourage other people to follow their dreams and to enjoy their life to the fullest. That's amazing. Um, I, I'll ask you a question if you don't want to talk about it. That's okay. But in the film, you, you mentioned that you'd had sort of a healing moment with Feelings about your father? You okay to talk about that, or yeah, no worries. Um, you were saying in the film that you had a, a healing moment with feelings about your father when you were uh, in the volcano as well. Um, is that was that part of what you just described? Your feelings about you know life and your place in the universe. When I was fifteen, my father committed suicide, so. We had a very big fight. We did not talk for three days and then he committed suicide. So I was always really angry at my father at one side, but also angry at me because I had this big fight. And, um, you know, like it never really let me off. But I would not have been inside the volcano. I would not be the person I am today if this would not have happened. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, then forget everything. Like, why do I have to question? why are things the way they are? I just have to accept it. So I felt like, okay, I'm just throwing everything in the volcano, all my worries, all the past, all what happened, all the bad things. And, you know, the fire deals with it. And um, I felt very relieved because I had no more anger. And for me, this moment where I was so close to death and destruction, I understood because I understood that life is so beautiful. But if somebody does not feel anymore how beautiful life is, 
that I, he did, my father took a different choice. He said, I want to be in a different world. And for me, that was okay because, you know, it's just a different world and a different place to be. And this, somebody in Papua New Guinea has taught me that death is just not the end of everything, but just another way of being. Mm-hmm. This person in Papua New Guinea, his name is Gemtazu. He believes that the spirits after death, they fly free and that they're still part of the world of the living. And Gemtazu believes that being mummified, this is how he shows his family that he's still there. It's a mm-hmm. bit interesting because I could not imagine my father being mummified as such but I was living with Gemtazu following his life also after his death for over 12 years so I really learned a lot about death and I also realized that if we allow the death are still part of our world because the moment we think about them they are reality this goes Mm -hmm. back to being a child with a very vivid fantasy because if you think about something it is also a way of reality so that's why i did not feel alone anymore at the side of the volcano Mm. thanks for sharing that i'm sorry to even ask you i just felt that um i i I felt like i I probably should follow up that lead but i I don't i hate to ask such a personal question but um thanks for sharing that yeah i I, just to go back um going to work in the inside the volcano as a photographer, how do you sort of deploy your skills in that way? Do you just go into like a, a storytelling mode? You're, what kind of, what's the story in there and how do you go about capturing it, if that makes sense? Capturing a story inside the volcano is not as easy as it sounds. I mean, capturing a story, I normally just follow what happens. The more mm-hmm. interesting the people in front of my camera are, the more interesting the action is, the better my story is. So a lot of my work goes into research, finding good people, finding good stories. But doing this inside a volcano, it adds another dimension to it because the working environment is really, really tricky. So to me, photography, it's something in these moments, I cannot think about how to take pictures. So this is all automatization. I know what makes a good picture. I know my settings. But inside a volcano, I have to concentrate really hard when I want to take pictures on a rope, when I have to go close to the lava, like will my camera withstand this heat? That's also a big question. And yes, it did. I had my heat suit on, but for the camera, there is no heat suit, obviously. So I was just holding it over the edge and the camera, lucky it lasts. But um, in moments like this, the, um, the more photographs you do, the better your work will be because the more practice you have. And in these mm-hmm. moments, I was very lucky that I had a lot of practice. So a lot of things came automatically because okay. it's an environment which overwhelms you. So you have to be really clear also about your work that you can't make mistakes because you're there only once. Oh my, yeah. I mean, I have been there may, many, several times afterwards, but at this moment I thought I'd be there only once and I had a very mm-hmm. big assignment, a big film to do, big photo story to do. So there was a lot of pressure. And at the same time, I was responsible for my team because they all mm-hmm. followed me and my dream. So I had to make mm-hmm. sure that everybody's safe. So the moment yeah. I realized that I actually did fulfill my dream was only when we were back in the safety of the base camp, like two and a half days later. 
um, the images, obviously, from inside are absolutely extraordinary. And um, we'll put links, obviously, in the show notes for people to check those out. The other thing I wanted to pick up on, we've mentioned already, was the story of Gemtasu, if I'm saying that right. Um, I was fascinated by this project. I saw it on your website, and I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. But when you go in to look at the photographs of of the whole project, uh, oh, I realized how incredibly intense that must have been uh, and emotional. Um, These are people living in Papua New Guinea, um, and... The I guess he's he's an Gemtasu is an elder in in this community, and he wants to be mummified. And this is a guy who had kind of you must have visited the community many times, and he's taken you in as an adoptive daughter, right? So this is a man who's very close to you. Yes, and he's asked you to document this process of his mummification. So how difficult was that for you? Very, very, very difficult to fulfill his wish to photograph him when he's getting mummified. Because I love Gemtazu. Mm-hmm. He is like a second dad to me. He became my adoptive mm-hmm. father. My husband, when he proposed to me, he also had to officially marry me in the tribe. I had to share all my, you know, a lot of my moments. I spent so much time with these people, like at the beginning, two, three months at a time when I was still studying in Australia. I went every holiday to visit my family in Papua New Guinea and I learned so much from them. So to see Gemtazu getting mummified to me, that was very, very hard. But he wanted to be mummified after his death because he believes that like this, he becomes a protective spirit to his loved ones. So for me, that was very, very nice. But he asked me if I photograph this. And I said, yes, of course, when he was still alive. Mm-hmm. And when he, when he died, I was in Papua New Guinea and I did not even go because I said, oh, no, I can't do this. So I went back home for five mm-hmm. days. I did not sleep, honestly, like really five days, no sleep. It was very, very, very hard. But I had such a bad consciousness. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Papua New Guinea and I said, okay, I'm just going to attend the funeral. So I was with week, I think it was day eight of the mummification. That's when I came back. And I did not photograph at the beginning at all. I was just overwhelmed by seeing Gemtazu with the smoke. I mean, the whole mummification process takes three months. And he was in this different state. I mean, normally you don't see that person after a week. So he was like blooded mm-hmm. from the fire and it was still, his face was still Gemtazu. And after three days, like his family asked me, hey, Ola, you promise, where's your camera? So I was like, oh, okay. So I took the photographs, but mm-hmm. very, very, very secondary. You know, I was overwhelmed tears in my eyes from the smoke from uh, feeling for Gemtazu and I helped with the mummification all the time so I took some pictures they were like you know not the main goal and I was very happy that I was already very like taking good pictures because in these moments again like same as you're inside a volcano you cannot concentrate on your camera work the other things are more important so I took pictures Mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's it. So I attended like several weeks of the mummification process and I went back home. And then 
I did not look at the pictures. For three quarters of a year, I could not look at one. And then I had the bad consciousness getting really very big because I promised Gemtazu to show his pictures, to show to the world and to encourage other people not to think that death is the end of everything, but to think that death is just another state of being. So then I started to look at mm -hmm. the pictures. And uh, I remember three weeks, I was just editing the pictures, zooming in on the eye of mummified Gemtas, or seeing if this is sharp, seeing if the other image is better. It was so hard by myself. When I was mummifying Gemtaso in Papua New Guinea, it felt natural because that was like the way the people do it. But then being back in my environment in Germany and editing the pictures, it was horrible. And the first times mm -hmm. I showed Gemtaso's pictures, I talked about him. I remember every time I was in tears. I mean, even now when I show his pictures on the big screen, I do multivision shows like keynote talks and I talk about him. I still have always little tears in my eyes. But at the beginning, it was very, very hard. But uh, every mm -hmm. time I talk about him, it makes me happy because then people learn his name and his final wish is fulfilled because he becomes immortal by us talking about him, thinking about him, looking at pictures of him and learning from him. His legacy lives on. Yeah, I, I just was, I mean, it's an interesting story, right, as an outsider to, to see that. But then knowing your story, <laughs> it just makes it so intense. Um, but I, I, I was thinking, yeah, it was, it was his wish and it's his, his own dignity and pride to go through that and to have that process. And it gives him, there's a, there must be a, a stature culturally for him to do that. But yeah, just knowing that your relationship with him and with your dad, I just thought this must have been a very, very deep story for you. Definitely. Um, so yeah, again, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. No, don't worry. It's okay because Gemtazu allowed me to photograph his story. He said to me, Ulla, I want you to photograph my story and I want you to share my story because I want to make sure that other people are not afraid of death anymore, but also that they enjoy their lives whenever they are alive. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's one of my big missions, what I realized throughout my photography journey, that... Um, it's our obligation as filmmakers and photographers, as storytellers, to contribute something. A lot of people contribute to the protection of the environment. I also do. But to me, the big mission of mine is to make sure that people enjoy life and that they share how beautiful life is. And we can do this with photography because if we show the beauty in things, I'm sure people will take much more care they will protect the environment they will take care of their loved ones they will take care of other people and i believe that by respect for life it's um it, a lot of problems are solved yeah I, I hope people check that out i think it's a fantastic photography story it was published in national geographic and some other places too so we'll post the link for that There's another project I, I wanted to touch on, but I think it will come up later. So let's have a quick chat about camera gear, since it's a, cam a photography show. Um, so are you a Canon ambassador? Is that right? Yes. I'm a Canon ambassador since many, many years, and uh, I'm very grateful for it. 
Yeah, that's great. So what if I wanted to go in a volcano, what is the best camera and lens that I should take with me? A camera which you are comfortable using, a camera which is easy to use and a camera which is sturdy and robust enough to use in all circumstances. So I found this within the Canon product range. I started photographing with different brands and my journey involved like four or five different brands and I finished with Canon because they are having gear which is easy to use and robust enough so I can take it in all environments. I guess the, the documentary photographer, I always think of wide angle lenses really, would that be your kind of go-to lens? Inside the volcano, I had 11 to 24 millimeter because I knew one picture was only possible with this long, with this very wide angle lens, like mm -hmm. a busty upsiling and having the lava lake at the same time. But mm -hmm. down inside the volcano, I had the 24 70 mil lens with me and the 15 to 35. Right now, I'm using the R5. The inside the volcano, I was still with a 5D Mark IV. I was actually mm -hmm. the first person on the planet to test this camera. And I did not tell Canon that I take the camera inside an active volcano. I just <laughs> said I go and photograph volcanoes. So they said, yeah, yeah, you take the camera, test it. And then they were very surprised what I brought, that I actually had the camera in the volcano. But now I'm photographing with a R5. I'm using a lot the 15 to 35 mil lens, 2.8. The 24 to 70 is also one of my preferred lenses, 2.8, and I have the 100 to 500 because it's a really good compromise for travel photography. So these three lenses I own, I use, and uh, yes, I'm a very wide-angle person. I love to go close to people. I love to go close to things, and for me, wide-angle is very, very nice. But of course, people, I don't shoot with the widest angle because then it looks a bit distorted. So I just try to have like 24, 28 to 35 millimeter in that range. And um, I also like to zoom with my feet. I don't really like using zoom lenses, but um, I would love to use more fixed lenses. But in a volcano or being on rock faces or whatever, it's not, um, how to say, it's not very practical to zoom mm -hmm. with your feet. You cannot go backwards and forwards. It's, I always find it really interesting. I, I prefer to use a long lens and step back. I mean, I'm not shooting in the same kind of ways as you are, but um, I think being on a wide angle lens and being close to people for my personality, I find that quite intimidating. But I guess for you, going back to just your curiosity and your willingness to learn, you're quite happy to get in about to, to places and people and really find out what's going on. So I can see that how that works for you. Yes. For me, photography is a way to get close to people, to get to the hearts of people, to get to know people, because without the photography, I would probably not dare to talk a lot, to talk to many people, because I say, hi, I'm a photographer, and you have a very interesting way of looking at me. I love your eyes. Can I take a picture? And, you know, normally you would not do this. You cannot just walk up to anybody, um, like... I met a group of people lately photographing on Etna at night and I just connected and uh, like we had so much fun together. But without photography, this would probably not have happened because we would not have been there at the same place at the same time. And we share a passion 
not only for photography, but for nature and for respect for nature. And um, this to me, it's also about photography. It's you meet so many people in a different way, in a much more profound way, because I don't know, it's about treasuring the moment. And not many people have this way of seeing life as, um, you know, treasuring every moment and make the most out of every moment. This next round is called Double Exposure. And in this round, I would like to ask you about the story behind a particular photograph of yours. And then I'll ask you to choose one of your own photographs that has a particular story um, to tell me about. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Eden in Ashes is the is the project. And this is a, about, well, I'll let you maybe set the scene for the story, but the, there's a few photographs that I chose out. Um, there's one with a, a child on kind of on a beach and the vol- there's a plume of smoke coming from a volcano in the background. Um, it's one of the leading pictures on your site. Um, so the kids in the foreground and the volcanoes in the background. But I thought this story was quite interesting because it's it's another side of of volcanoes. I guess it's more um, the, the danger and devastation that they can bring. So could you maybe tell us about the story of Eden and Ashes or the is it the Tavurvur volcano? Yes, my favorite image is actually one of. Uh, the kids jumping in front of the volcano the one you described it's one of my all-time favorite images because to me it shows the life within the destruction of the volcano volcanoes create and destroy at the same time and for people it's completely normal to live in the border at the borderline of like destruction and creation and to accept every day as it comes and live every day to the fullest often we think too much but we don't feel and to me this moment where the kids are jumping they just felt the poor joy of being alive to get this image i went three days every day to the same spot to see the children playing because they were playing every night at the same spot and i was waiting for the moment where they are completely not looking at me anymore with a camera and the volcano is going off in the nice light. Mm-hmm. So it took me three days every night, a couple hours I played with the kids and then I let them play without me. And in the end, I could finally take the image. Yeah, it's really amazing uh, the the contrast, isn't it, of just that joy of childhood and life, as you said, with the sort of destruction and, or looming in the background. The other picture I thought uh, I wanted to ask about on that project was there's a, a young man, it's like a fire dance ritual. Um, and there's a, I think it's a young man who's walking through fire. He had some kind of mask on. Um, it's a really eye-catching and, and fascinating photograph. Um, can you tell me about that one? It's a ritual in the binding area in Papua New Guinea. People actually learn from a very young childhood onwards to walk through fire. They dance through fire and uh, only special people can do it. You're not allowed to know who's under the mask. The masks, traditionally, they are burned after every ritual. Now they're more or less kept, but they're very hard to make. And uh, it's a very special moment. This dance does not happen often. It does not happen 
necessarily if you pay for it. It's just a ritual, which is very special. And uh, I was very glad to photograph it in the course of a big festival. So um, I was intrigued the very first time I saw it because it's at night. You have very, very big fires and the people just run through the fires. Other people, they make noises with drums. So it's like a very, it's, um, the, you're almost in trance with the dancers. The dancers are also kind of in trance, but you're also the same because the vibration of the drum, it just moves everything. The ground shakes a little bit and then the people dance and they scream mm -hmm. and they shout. And uh, I was able to photograph this moment where the fire just bursts when they walk through it. And to me, it's that connection again with the earth, with the fire, which creates and destroys and the people who are in tune with their nature. Is there a particular photograph that has a great story or a very special memory attached to it that you could share? I love one recent photograph of mine. It shows a child sleeping in the ash and the volcano erupting behind. And the child is actually my mm -hmm. son, son Manuk. He's named after an right. active volcano in Indonesia. And um, <laughs> he is now just turned four years. He has seen 45 countries and eight erupting volcanoes. He always plays volcano with everything and anything. And uh, he has never been sick in his whole life. And he has this trust in me and also in the nature that nothing will happen to him. So for me, having him sleeping in front of the active volcano, it's this image where it shows this trust in nature and what happens in the course of your life. As a child, you don't question, you just go along, you just trust. And um, if you show this trust, you always will meet people who take care of you, who will protect you. And uh, for me, it's also a way of, you know, I never wanted to have children. For me, I was always into adventure, into volcanoes, and a child does not fit in this world. But he just came along and um, he adapts to my life because I did not adapt one single thing with my life to him. I'm sorry to say, but like, it's not, <laughs> no, nothing has changed. I still do my expedition. It's a bit more organization, but I don't make compromises not i mean i don't put him in dangerous situations of course but um sure. he's always part of my life and to me having him coming along on my trips it's the way of that you can make everything work if you really want to make it work and um mm. we were inside the volcano and he was sleeping at the rim of the volcano some local friends were taking care of him and, you know, it's just the matter of organizing yourself and making sure that you incorporate everything what comes along in your life. Everything has its purpose. Maybe you don't see the purpose at this moment, but you will for sure realize it one day or even not. But you just have to accept the flow of life and uh, go along with it. And then it will be very beautiful. Well, I'll put a link to that picture. I'm looking at it on your Instagram now. So I'm sure he's learning a lot along the way. Um, okay, this takes us to the final round of questions. If you're okay, this is kind of a quick round. Um, so I'll ask you a few quick questions and you just have to shoot back the answer as fast as you can. But there's no pressure for time because, you know, you just take as long as you like. So the first question, uh, wide angle or telephoto? Wide angle. Okay, coffee or tea? Uh, both. Both, okay. Coffee in the morning until 12 and then tea afterwards. 
<laughs> okay. Would you use an expensive lens cloth or just the corner of your shirt? Corner of my shirt if it's not too dirty. Yeah, but your shirt gets really dirty. I can imagine where the places you go. So my lens is also often very dirty. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, there's ash and who knows what in those places that you go. So, um, yeah. Um, okay, what's your favorite emoji? Volcano. Oh, of course. I, I mean, I should have seen that coming. Um, I was wondering if you're really into volcano movies and if you have a favorite volcano movie. Spitting Distance. It's my own one. <laughs> it's uh, from Red Bull. No. But lately there has been um, a really great movie from about Maurice and Katja Kraft. It's a fire of love. It's a recent movie about the most well-known volcanologist Maurice and Katja Kraft who have died with a volcanic eruption. But I also like my own movie. It's called Spitting Distance. It was shown on Red Bull TV. You can still find it online. Yeah, well, I can vouch for a spitting distance. It's amazing. Um, okay, what's a weird thing I could find in your camera bag? Mm, like to me, it's not weird, but I have a gas mask with me. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's uh, normal to have a gas mask, but uh, probably to most people, the gas mask is not what you usually find in the camera bag. Yes, I, I think if I went to a company and do, do some headshots and I pulled out a gas mask, it would be weird. So um, that, that definitely counts. Um, okay, name a photographer that everybody should know, whether in your field or, or just a favorite photographer of yours. Carson Peter. He was the photographer I learned from during my first National Geographic trip. I have a lot of admiration for him, for his work, for what he's doing and for what he has been teaching me. Okay. And so was he on the trip that you joined as a as a cook? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So we'll look that up. All right. Last question, Ula. When do you feel at peace with the universe? I feel at peace with the universe when I'm fully alive. When I have those moments where I can really say, wow, it does not have to be inside a volcano. It does not necessarily have to be near a lava flow. It's also moments I share with special people. It's also moments I can have when I'm just at home looking at the very wild garden. Um, it's those moments where I feel fully alive. And to me, this feeling, I would love to encourage more people to have this, to be happy with their lives. If they're not happy, they should change. And with my photography, I want people to realize that they either should be happy with what they have or should change, but that they should be happy. And this is the responsibility we have. We have to be happy ourselves so we can make other people happy. And to share these thoughts with pictures, with words, with other people, to me, it's a very big chance. So I'm really grateful that you gave me the chance today to share my thoughts and my vision. And I would love to say thanks to everybody who is listening right now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow Ula on Instagram and check out her website where you can see more of the photo stories we spoke about and find information about her workshops and expeditions. Links to everything we spoke about are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, then check out my conversations with George Steinmetz and Brian Hodges. That's all for now. Take care. Enjoy your photography. I'll see you out there. <laughs>